Heavenly Father, we do thank you and we praise you for your word. And we thank you again, Lord, that it, it applies to our lives today. Even as we look at things that were written down thousands of years ago, they still reach it down today and just touch us. And Lord, I pray that you would minister to our hearts tonight the truths that you want to teach us. And we thank you again that as we look at the Old Testament, it's such a clear picture of your perfect Son who came to suffer and die that we might have eternal life. So Lord, we pray that you would be our teacher tonight. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit says. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. On Wednesday nights, we're, we're continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament. If you're coming on Sunday, this next Sunday will be in John chapter 6. I encourage you to read ahead and be... Uh, Take a look at that, so when you come on Sunday, you're prepared. But tonight, we're going to continue our verse-by-verse study through Exodus. And as we're going through, tonight we're going to see something really unique in that we're going to see a chapter that is almost word-for-word word with Exodus 26. Exodus 26 and Exodus 36, especially the second half of it, are almost verbatim. And there's a reason for that. We're going to talk about that tonight. Matter of fact, I've seen some people that they get to this chapter and they say, well, it's almost the same as, the, as chapter 26. So they did, but you know what? If it's in God's Word twice, there's a reason for it. Amen? And if God tells us something once, we better pay attention. And if He tells us twice, we better really pay attention. But there's some other reasons why it's in there. We'll look at that in a minute. Now, last week, in Exodus 35, we saw that Moses had come down from the mountain and he was glowing in the dark for Jesus, as I put it. Remember, he had to veil his face. He'd been in the presence of Almighty God. And because he'd been in God's presence, when he came down, he was literally glowing. And we talked about how that we as believers in Christ should be the moon reflecting the sun. Not the S-U-N, but the S-O-N. And we should be a reflection of him to the world around us that's living in darkness. Well, we know that Moses came down from the mountain and he delivered to them the message. And he told them that the the tabernacle was going to be built. Now, back in chapter 26, when the instruction was given, remember that that was God speaking directly to Moses. And now as we come to chapter 36, it's Moses speaking to the people. And I think it's very awesome to me that the words that were spoken from God to Moses are the very same words that Moses is going to speak to men. A lot of pastors ought to learn that, I think. Amen? Instead of saying, you know, my opinion, let's take what God ministers to us and minister that to people. Instead of, you know, taking the 12 keys of this or the 8 steps to joy or whatever else, and, you know, using all the, the worldly tools at, at, our, at our disposal, why don't we just take this right here, the Word of God that's been delivered to us from God and deliver it to God's people. And when you minister to people at work or people in your neighborhood or you want to share with somebody, your opinions, I'll be honest with you guys, don't take offense, pretty worthless. Because we're men and women, and you know what? We, we don't get it. But that's why God told us to walk not in the counsel of the ungodly, but he gave us the word of God. And you know what? So Moses is going to take what's being delivered to him and give it to the people. And I believe that's exactly why this chapter and the, and the chapters after it are in the Bible. That's one main reason is to show that the word that was delivered to Moses, Moses delivered to the people. We're also going to see some other things again that apply to our lives in here. And he had told them in, in the previous chapter, in chapter 35, that here are the materials that are going to be needed to build the tabernacle. And we talked about the fact that this is a pretty awesome task. And remember that this is the three million people church that's the biggest bunch of whiners and murmurers you ever saw in your life. Remember they're down and, oh, we want to go back to Egypt. They've been delivered from bondage and these guys were murmuring and complaining and bickering. And man, I don't want to be the pastor of that church. And then he goes up on the hill and he comes down and what are they doing? They're worshiping a golden calf. You remember that? So this is quite the church to be, to be the pastor over. But he's, these are the group of people he's got. And he comes down and he delivers this message to them that God wants to build the tabernacle, but these are the materials that are going to be needed. And it was an incredible list and we looked at it last week. But then we saw that the people were touched by God and we saw that, that he was also saying, you know, not only are you to bring materials, but there's also going to be the need for people to do the work. And I taught, the title of the message last week was Giving to God of Our Possessions, of Our Time, and of Our Abilities. And we saw last week that God was calling people not to just to give of their, of their possessions because first and foremost, everything we have belongs to the Lord anyway. Amen? It's all His. But to give Him of our time, our first fruits of our time, to have that Sabbath rest and to rest in Him, and then to give to Him of our abilities. And remember last week that He called some men by name, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that tonight. And so the same spirit we talked about last week that, that calls people by name to be a pastor or to be an evangelist or to be a worship leader, it's that same Holy Spirit that calls people to come early and set up chairs. 
or to run the bookstore, or to do the coffee ministry, or to work in the nursery. And there's an anointing that comes for practical ministry as well. And it's just as important in the kingdom of God as any other ministry that exists. And the same Holy Spirit ministers in both of those ministries. And so tonight we're going to see the people's response as the Holy Spirit is going to stir them to give. And remember last week I pointed this out, that he told them all the things that were needed, and then the people went home. And then, as they were stirred by the Spirit, they came back to give. And I like that. It wasn't an emotional thing. He didn't manipulate people. He didn't put them into a corner and pass the offering basket 27 times until they got the money that they needed. He said, you know what? Here's what the Lord has told me the needs are. You go home, and you only come back if the Holy Spirit stirs you to give. The Bible says the Lord loves a cheerful giver. The word there for cheerful is hilarion, and it means hilarious. God loves someone who gives hilariously, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that tonight. So tonight we're going to look at the beginning of the construction of the tabernacle again that we looked at 10 chapters ago, and that's when the instructions were being given. Now we're actually going to see the instructions taking place. So first we're going to look in the first seven verses, the people's response to the stirring of the Spirit. So Exodus 36, let's begin in verse 1. And it says, And Bezalel and Ahuliab... And every gifted artisan in whom the God has put wisdom and understanding to know how to do all manner of work for the service of the sanctuary shall do accordingly to all that the Lord has commanded. Then Moses called Bezalel and Oholiab and every gifted artisan in whose heart the Lord had put wisdom, everyone whose heart was stirred to come and do the work. Now I want you to note three things here in these first two verses. First of all, God calls people by name first one was Bezalel, and his name means in the shadow of God, and I like that, because I believe it denotes that this was a man who was going to be used mildly by God, but he was walking close enough to God to be in his shadow. But also I believe that it points to the fact that he was walking close enough to God to be in his shadow, but also that he would take no glory away from God. He dwelt in the shadow of the Lord, and that's his name. And so this guy was a mighty craftsman, because as we're going to see in the coming weeks, that he's going to be called to do incredible construction work to do incredible uh, things with gold and silver, but also to be someone who can put together uh, a, all different types of material and even create the, the, the breastplate and, all, and put those precious stones into it. So he's going to have to be a craftsman, a contractor, a jeweler, everything under the sun. But here's the good news. If God calls us to do something, he will equip us to do it. And so he calls this man by name. And he also called another man by the name of Aholiab. And his name means the tent of the Father. And it's interesting to me that he's the assistant in making the tent of the Father. There's no question or doubt in my mind that, again, called by God to assist in the construction of the tent and its furnishings. So number one, God calls people by name. And I absolutely know, we talked about this the last few weeks, that in the, in the Old Testament, people were called to be priests because of birth. If you were a son of Aaron, and then later the firstborn son of every family, and then later if you were a Levite, you were automatically a priest. You automatically served in the temple. And so you were a servant by birth, or called by birth. The same is true of every one of us in this room tonight. We've been called by rebirth. Amen? When you were born again, you were adopted into the family of God, and you are called into ministry. Ministry is not a destination, it's a way of life, and we're all in it. Amen? And sometimes, we, oh, when I'm in the ministry someday, oh, when God has something special. When He saved you, He desired to use you, and He's calling you by name. He's got a ministry in mind, we just need to listen to His voice. Number two, God anoints those who He calls. This craftsman gifted by the master became the master craftsman. Mere human ability would be insufficient for the task. You know what? We can't, without Him, the Bible says, we can do what? Nothing. And nothing means nothing. So without Him, you can do nothing. But I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So I can either do all things through Him or nothing without Him. So I need to be fully reliant upon Him. And so we see here that He calls people by name, but then once He calls them, He anoints them or gifts them to be able to do the ministry that He's called them to. And then lastly, all calling, anointing, and gifting and ability originates with the Holy Spirit and not with men. You know what? It doesn't come from... People, I've heard people say, you know, if, if, you know, if so-and-so would become a Christian, how incredible would that be? You know, if such and such a rock musician... Or, and again, we should desire that every person come to know Christ. But God doesn't need Elvis Presley. Amen? 
You know, God doesn't need Britney Spears. He doesn't need, you know, and again, if they got saved, that would be wonderful. But God will equip those that he's called in the ministry. Whoever he's called, he'll equip them to be used for his kingdom. Verse 3. Then Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every gifted artisan in whose heart the Lord had put wisdom. Everyone whose heart was stirred to come and do the work. And they received from Moses all the offering which the children of Israel had brought for the work of the service of making the sanctuary. So they continued bringing to him freewill offerings every morning. Then all the craftsmen who were doing all the work of the sanctuary came each from the work he was doing. And they spoke to Moses saying, The people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord commanded us to do. So Moses gave a commandment, and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, saying, Let neither man nor woman do any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. And the people were restrained from bringing. For the material they had was sufficient for all the work to be done, indeed too much. Now, this is a sign of some people who've been touched by God. Some commentators say, and I believe that this would apply more to the temple than the tabernacle, but some commentators say that the value of all the stuff needed to build it was over a billion dollars in today's money. But will you notice that when people's hearts have been touched by God, they brought it. And most of you, if it's your first time here at Calvary Chapel, I want to make it real clear. We're not about money here. We don't even pass an offering plate. And the reason we don't, I don't want anybody to ever think that that's the priority in this church. Where God guides, God provides, and He has always provided amply for us. He's taking care of it. But here's the thing. God does want us to give because where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. And we see these people coming and giving so much that they finally had to tell them stop. Now, I've yet to see a televangelist do that. I don't see anybody get on TV and go, by the way, guys, just stop it. Quit sending us money. It's always we're going to be off the air by Friday if you don't give to us. It's always the opposite way. And if they're going off the air by Friday, then let them go because where God guides, God provides. And so we see here that the Holy Spirit is not the author of confusion so that as God is calling these men to do this work and God is calling for this tabernacle to be built, that God brings the provision to make sure that it happens. You know what, I, again, if you go out and you try to do something in your flesh, it's going to fall apart. But if you do something in obedience to the Holy Spirit, it will never fall apart. Why? Because the Holy Spirit. And I've told you guys this before. The reason your pastor will never call you to do anything is because if I call you, I have to sustain you. If I call you to do a ministry, if I come and enlist you to do something, then you're going to do it for me, maybe. And I don't want you to do that. I want you to do it because God has woken you up in the middle of the night and you have a burden for something. Because God's given you a passion and desire to see something happen. These people went away, their Holy Spirit stirred their heart, and they came back and they gave to the point where they had to stop them because they gave so much. What an awesome testimony. True needs and calling will be responded to with God's provision of both resources and servants to do the work. I told you guys this many times, but I'll tell you again. We started this church a little over two years ago with five people. One of the prayers I prayed was, Lord, bring the servants first. And you know what? He has. We have a church full of servants, and I love it. You guys knock each other over trying to serve people, and that's good. And you know what? One of the things I hear when people come and visit, they say, man, you guys love each other. You know, I sat down and 15 people came and made me feel welcome, and that's the way the body of Christ ought to be. And the Lord desires that we serve and minister one to another. So true giving is in response to the knowledge of God's love, His grace, and His forgiveness. And again, when we truly come to understand God's incredible love for us, that He was willing to die in our place and to take our punishment, that we are His treasured possession, that He, he loves us more than anything. Think about it. God had created the universe. What does He treasure? He can, have, he can speak it, make anything happen. What does He treasure? You. You are his treasured possession. He who knows me best loves me most. He loves you guys so much. And when you start to understand that, and that gripping comes onto your heart, then you come to the point where you realize God has forgiven me so much, and he loves me so much, why in the world would I not give my all back to him? Why wouldn't I give my life to him? Give everything that belongs to me to him? Because, again, when this time has come and passed, only what we've done for Christ will last. Nothing else is going to matter anyway when we get to heaven. No 401k plans in heaven, you know, no Maseratis in heaven, no Harley Davidsons, right? No, you know, no biceps in heaven, no, whatever it is you're working on, whatever it is that's important to you now, when you get to heaven, it's not going to matter. And these guys were so touched by the grace of God. Remember, they'd been in total rebellion, and now the Lord said he's going to be back in their midst, that they came and came and gave and gave and gave. 
Now, what I love about this is this reminds me of one of my favorite stories in the Bible. And you know what? I very rarely, if ever, do this, but I'm going to do it. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 26. I almost never have you turn out a chapter, but I'm going to do it tonight real briefly. And I want to look at six verses here, seven verses here. And I want to see a prime example of somebody who has been touched by the Lord and then gives supernaturally. And this is a story of the woman who anoints our Savior. Look at verse 6. And when Jesus was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil. This is chapter 26, verse 7. And she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. Now, Simon the leper. Leprosy was a picture of sin. This is the only time this guy's mentioned anywhere in the Bible. And they're at his house, and they're having a great feast. No doubt, Jesus had touched him and healed him. If somebody heals you of leprosy, you better believe you're going to have a huge feast. Leprosy in the Bible is a typology of what? Sin. Because it, it kills you. It destroys you. It's a, and that's what sin does to us spiritually, the same thing that leprosy does to us physically. And so in the midst of this, in comes this woman, and she, had poured, she anoints his head with oil. Now the woman we know from John's account is a woman by the name of Mary. And every single time we see this woman, she's the mother or the sister of Martha and Lazarus, we see her three times in the Bible. First time we see her in Luke 10, she's sitting at Jesus' feet and listening to him teach the Bible. The second time we see her in John chapter 11, she fell at his feet after her brother was, had died, Lazarus, who was later risen from the dead. And then this time we see her at his feet when she's anointing him with oil. Every time you see Mary, where is she? At Jesus' feet. I'll tell you what, that's a good place to be. Amen? She said, man, that's where I want to be. And what's awesome to me is when you look at the gospel record, she anointed his feet, she anointed his head, and then she took her hair and she wiped his feet with her hair. Now it says in 1 Corinthians that, that a woman's hair is her crowning glory. And so she removed her glory and gave it to the Lord. She said, not my glory, but your glory. Not my will, but your will. But what I love about this, too, is that Mark sets the value of this oil at more than 300 denarii, or about a year's wages. So, in today's terms, maybe $75,000, or some, some huge number. And this flask of oil would have been her dowry that was waiting for her wedding day, that she would give to her husband as a gift on their wedding day. And this flask is usually set up somewhere very prestigious in the home and had alabaster this really beautiful shell-like substance and then inside of it would be this oil and this oil was very fragrant and very expensive but when she saw Jesus she said there's my master there's my savior he's the one that's forgiven me he's the reason that I live there's nothing that's more important to me than him I know it's my dowry I know it's valuable to me but you know what there's nothing more valuable in the world than him and I'm gonna take this to him and she took it and it says there for this fragrant and it says in verse 8 but when his disciples saw it they were indignant saying why this waste why did you waste this now it's interesting that Jesus is the groom and she understood it even when his apostles didn't and when she went in to put the oil on him, she had to do something. She had to break that flask. And the only way that beautiful fragrance would come out was the flask had to be broken. And I believe there's a spiritual analogy for every one of us. If we want to be a sweet aroma in the presence of our Savior, we must be broken. It can't be our will anymore. We must be broken before Him in awe and reverence of our God. You know, I think it really grips my heart how flippantly people talk about God. They just talk about him, oh yeah, God, this God. Hey, you know what? Our God is an awesome, a mighty, a holy, a righteous, and a just God. He's the creator of the universe. He's the Alpha and Omega. He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And you know what? I could sit here and talk about him for the next hundred years, and I couldn't even begin to explain the majesty of our Savior. That's the God that we serve. And you know what? Mary got it. And she went and took the most valuable thing she had, and she broke it, and she poured it out all over his feet. And you know what? That fragrance lit up the whole house. And when we worship, you know what it does? It brings that aroma to our entire house. It, it ministers to the Lord, but it brings an aroma to our entire home. You, you show me a home where mom and dad are worshiping, I'll show you a house where the fragrance of worship is ministering to everybody who comes in the door. It'll minister to the family. And so this woman comes and gives the most valuable possession that she has as an act of devotion and worship. But what do the disciples say? What a waste. Now we know from... The other gospel accounts that the person who said that was who? Judas. 
We know what Judas was all about. He was all about money, wasn't he? Judas wanted the money for himself, and he said, what a waste. And you know what? When you're sold out for Jesus Christ, you're going to have other people, even people that claim to be Christians, who think you're nuts. You're doing what? You're quitting your job to do ministry? What are you thinking, man? You're going to take a huge pay cut. Dude, think about what you're doing. Yeah, I'm going to give up that which is perishing for that which is eternal. I'm going to trade in my deck chair on the Titanic for, you know, a, a safe trip into the harbor. Yeah, yeah, you're right, I'm nuts. But see, from the world's perspective, they look at things from a physical point of view, and when she took this flask of a year's worth of wages and poured it out all over Jesus' feet, the people said, you're crazy. This is the same kind of heart that these people had that were coming, and they gave until they finally had to say, stop. You know what? I believe that if we gave the way God calls us to give, and I'm not talking about the Calvary Chapel, all right? It's not what we're about. But if we gave the way we're supposed to give, if just the people that were truly Christians gave, that we would need uh, welfare. You know what happened? If somebody was hurting, they'd come down to the church, knock on the door and say, you know what? I don't have a place to live. We'll take care of you. I don't have any food to eat. No problem. We'll hook you up. And you know why? Because that would be an opportunity to minister to them physically, but also spiritually. And that's what God wants us to do as the church. So here's Mary. She thought nothing of herself. She comes into the room. It's an act of worship before God. She takes her most valuable possession. The others at the table didn't get it, and she wasn't worried about what other people thought. She was worshiping an audience of one, Jesus. She didn't care what the people sitting around thought. She didn't care what anybody else said. She said, Lord, I love you, and I'm going to give you everything that I have. Now, how does our Savior respond to her? Verse 10. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have with you always. Now, it's interesting. He's not bagging on giving to the poor, because we know the Lord ministered to the poor. But what he's telling them is that worshiping him is more important than anything else. Your relationship with him will cause you to minister to the poor. Your relationship with him will cause you to be a better husband, a better wife, a better mother, a better father, a better worker, a better everything. If you're in love with the Lord, you'll be contagious, he'll rub off on you, and you'll have an impact on the world around you. And so she was so focused, again, on worshiping the Lord, she didn't worry about what men thought. And Jesus comes to her defense and tells him, look, she's done a much better thing than what you're doing. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. As surely I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, that this woman has done, what this woman has done will also be told in a memorial to her, and we're doing that right this second. She did this 2,000 years ago, and we're talking about it tonight. Why? Because she truly understood what it meant to give and what it meant to worship. And understand that giving is worship. I love it. Think about it. Mary brought joy to the heart of Jesus. Don't you, let me ask you a question. Don't you want to bring joy to the heart of our Savior? Is there anything in the world that's better than that? I know I grieve His heart all the time. How about you? Every time you sin, don't you break His heart and grieve His heart? Don't you want to bring joy to His heart? Worship. Give Him the best that you have. It all belongs to Him. I've told you guys this before. One of my favorite things in the world is to be called Daddy. I love it. It's one of my favorite words in the English language. I love, I got four kids, and I love when my kids come up and get in my lap and call me Daddy. Man, I love it. I'm a mess. Okay? I'm an emo- I'm not, I get emotional when it comes to my children. And you know what? I know that God gave me that heart because that's the heart He has when we crawl up into His lap and we call Him Abba Father. That means Daddy. And Lord, I love you. And Daddy's not far away. Daddy is nearby. Amen? We can crawl up and draw near to Him. That's the God that we serve. So Mary's example of devotion and love encourages us to love Christ with our very best. Sadly, again, there are those who delayed in giving. Go back to Exodus chapter 36. Verse 7, it says, For the material that has been done sufficient, was for sufficient for all the work to be done, indeed too much. There were some that no doubt had thought about giving, but delayed in giving, and by the time they came, it was too late. You know, Lord, I want to give you my life, I want to serve you, Lord, but you know, I've got a few things I've got to take care of first. You know, as soon as I'm married, then I'll serve you. As soon as I've got my kids, then I'll serve you. Well, as soon as my kids get into school, then I'll serve Well, as soon as they get out of school and go away to college, well, Lord, as soon as my grandkids get grown up. And, you know, we've got all these reasons and excuses that we've put off serving the Lord. And the reality is that God wants you to serve Him right where you are right now. 
Again, ministry is not a destination, it's a way of life. Give with a chill for heart, out of love for our Savior, it's all His anyway. Verse 8. Then all the gifted artisans among them who worked on the tabernacle made ten curtains woven of fine linen. Now this is the repeated part from chapters 26. You'll see it is almost word for word. And of blue, purple, and scarlet thread with artistic designs of cherubim they made them. The length of each curtain was 28 cubits, the width of each curtain was 4 cubits, and the curtains were all the same size. And he coupled five curtains to one another, and the other five curtains he coupled to one another. Now, this is the beginning of the building of the tabernacle. And you might say, wow, this is pretty thrilling. And they were sewing, and they were pounding nails. Wow, that's great. Now, you know what? If it's in the Bible, it's in there for a reason. Amen? Every word, every, every letter, every space between every letter. And I want you to see in the next few weeks, that the tabernacle is such a clear picture of Jesus Christ that it's impossible not to see it unless, you just, unless there's scales over your eyes. Now the tabernacle of meeting, again, is so significant because this was going to be the place where the Shekinah glory of Almighty God would dwell. It's been said that for every New Testament principle, there's an Old Testament picture. And John 1.14 says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who's that talking about? Jesus. And the Word, the Word is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. The word for dwelt is tabernacled. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Guess what? That's exactly what's going to happen here as they build this tabernacle. Now the tabernacle is this tent of meeting. This place where they would come together, and they're going to put it together as a picture of it back there on the wall. You can look at it on the way out. And the tabernacle was the place where all the furnishings were. We're going to go through that in the next few weeks. But initially, they're building this tent. The tabernacle is, you know, a room about the size of this. And inside of it was this place of meeting. They'd go through the altar of burnt incense where they would make sacrifices. Then they'd go to the bronze laver where they would cleanse themselves from the blood of the sacrifice. Then they'd go into that most, the priest could go in that most holy place with the golden lampstand, which is a picture of the fact that Jesus is the light of the world. The table of showbread because Jesus is the bread of life. Then there was the altar of incense because Jesus is the great intercessor. Then the veil, we're going to talk about that, and then the most holy place. So he tells them to start building this place and, and, and he's starting to make these, these, uh, the tent itself. And so they're sowing these things, but look, I want you to see the things that are interesting about it because this, this temporary appointment, this temporary tabernacle that would move from place to place would eventually be put somewhere permanently, on a more permanent basis, in the land of promise. As they're wandering in the wilderness, it was temporary, and then ultimately it would be permanent in the land of promise. Picture of Jesus. He was here for 33 years. It was a temporary appointment. Where is he now? seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us daily. Tabernacle, a picture of Jesus Christ. Now it says there that there will be blue, purple, scarlet thread. And before that, fine linen. Now, we talked about this before. The fine linen was white in color. Now that's significant because that points to Jesus Christ. White is a picture of His righteousness. It says also there that it is blue. Blue is a picture of the heavenlies. Purple, royalty. Who's the king of kings and lord of lords? And the scarlet thread was a picture of the fact that he is our savior. Red being a picture of his redemptive shed blood upon the cross. So we see that each of these colors points to Christ. And then it said there would also be cherubim. Now what are cherubim? Who knows? Somebody tell me. Angels. Now the angels, it's interesting that the, the angelic host, and we'll talk about this more as we go through the text, the angels were always there to minister to our Savior. And we'll see that as we go through, but I won't talk about that now. The verse, next verse, verse 10, verse 11, excuse me. He made loops of blue yarn on the edge of the curtain, on the, on the selvage on one set. Likewise, he did on the, other, on the outer edge of the outer, other curtain on the second set. Fifty loops he made on one curtain, and fifty loops he made on the edge of the curtain on the end of the second set. The loops held one curtain to another, and he made 50 clasps of gold and coupled the curtains to one another with the clasp that it might be one tabernacle. Now, on each side of this tabernacle, they had these huge, you know, woven things that had these beautiful colors in it and, and, and the angelic in it. And there was five on each side, and they were held together at the top so that there were ten in all. Where else do you see five and five joined together making ten? Where, where do we just see Moses bring down? What did he just bring down? The Ten Commandments. Here's a picture of the law. 
And as the tabernacle is being built, it's a picture of Jesus Christ in all the colors that are in it and the angelic host that's with it. But then it's also a picture of the Ten Commandments. Because what does the law do? The law, the Bible says, is the taskmaster that leads us to the cross. And so these beautiful, this beautiful linen is woven together and it's held together at the top by these golden clasps. Now a couple things I want to say about this. These four, these four different colors also point to the four Gospels. Remember that Matthew is a Gospel written to who? Who remembers? To the Jews. And it pictures Jesus as the one who is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Right? Purple. King of Kings, Lord of Lords. In Luke, it emphasizes the fact that Jesus is sinless humanity. That He's the perfect Son of Man. The white that's in the, um, the linen. The blue represents the fact that He's heavenly, and we've seen that in the Gospel of John, that Jesus Christ is indeed God. And then lastly, Mark portrays Jesus as the suffering servant, and the red, the redemptive work that's done on the cross. Now I want you to see something about this word here. It says scarlet. And, and again, we're going to go in more detail on the clasp in a moment. But the scarlet that is there, I love this word, and I've shared this with you before, but I don't want to miss it, because it is so awesome. In Hebrew, the word for scarlet is toloth. And the way they made this color is they took a worm called a toloff and they would grind it. They'd grind these worms and, and this dye came from it. And then they would dip the, the thread or dip the linen into this, this uh, the, the dye and it would make that color. But it's interesting to me that a toloff is a, a, a unique worm in the way that it reproduces. In Psalm 22.6, which is a messianic psalm, it says, but I am a worm and not a man, speaking of Jesus Christ. And the word there is toloth. But I am a toloth and not a man, speaking of Jesus. Now, how does a toloth reproduce itself? It climbs up onto a tree, it fastens itself to, its, to the tree, and it dies in reproduction, leaving a huge red spot where it died. Climbs up onto a tree, attaches to the tree, and dies. After a few days, that red spot turns white and then flakes off. What did Jesus do? He clung to a tree. He died on the cross, paying the price for you and I, shedding His blood, and then, three days later, He rose from the dead. Again, the white, the righteousness, and we were made righteous through Him. Now, it's interesting to me that it says there that they use toloth or scarlet, thread. I like that. Because who is that pointing to? Very clearly pointing to Jesus Christ. Isaiah 1.18 says, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be made white as snow. Jesus was attached to the tree for our sin and he paid the price. Now later it says that there's cherubim, there's angels that are with Jesus at his birth. They're with him in the wilderness. They're with him in the garden. And you know what? They would never leave him nor forsake him. Again, a picture of Jesus Christ. Now remember also that these loops that are made are made of gold. And remember how we talked about this before. Gold in the Bible is always a picture of deity. When Jesus was born, they brought three gifts to him. Well, frankincense, myrrh, and what was the other one? Gold. Why? Because he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, but he's also Almighty God. And gold is a picture of deity. And we see that they use golden clasps with these things that were a picture of Christ. As they were being woven together, they were held together by gold. Why? Because it was a picture of Jesus. It's also interesting to note that there's 50 loops. In the Bible, 50 is the number of deliverance. It's the year of Jubilee. Remember every 50 years at the year of Jubilee? I, you know, it'd be good if we had this still today. Every 50 years, everybody's debts were canceled. So like, on the, let's say it's the year 2000. They would just come in, January 1st, 2000, any debt you have is paid for. Your house payment, done, paid for. Car payments, all gone. Any money you owe anybody, taken care of. Year Jubilee. You'd think there's a major party on that day or what, right? You come in, no more house payment. Yeah, that's right. Mortgage is paid for. People be trying to buy stuff in 1999, no doubt, right? It's going to be paid for next year anyway. Yeah, give me the Maserati. I mean, you know, give me this stuff because you know it's going to be paid for. Well, Jubilee was a year of deliverance. And how many clasps are on this thing that's a picture of our Savior? Fifty. Deliverance. Because why? Because Jesus came to deliver us from sin and death. That's our God that we serve. And so it's interesting also, Noah's Ark. How long, was, how long was Noah's Ark, the height of it? Who knows? 50 cubits. 50. And what did Noah's Ark do? It delivered the people from the judgment to come. And Jesus Christ delivered us from sin and death. 
So the law was held together by the deity of Christ. Verse 14. He made curtains of goat's hair. That's nice. For the tent over the tabernacle, he made 11 curtains. The length of each curtain was 30 cubits, and the width of each curtain was 4 cubits, and 11 curtains were the same size. He coupled 5 curtains by themselves and 6 curtains by themselves. He made 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is the outer one, set and the 50 loops he made on the edge of the curtain of the second set he also made 50 bronze clasps to the couple the tent together that it might be one now this beautiful linen these beautiful curtains purple and blue and white and scarlet with these with these angels in them was the bottom layer and on top of them they put these gnarly looking black goat's hair curtains so that nobody could see these beautiful linen curtains that were underneath. And so we see, you know who, the only people that saw the linen curtains were the people that went into the most holy place and saw it from underneath. Because on top of it went this black, gnarly looking material. And so it, it, from, the, from the links it says here, it was a little bit longer, so it hung over, and all you saw was the black covering up the beautiful part of the curtains. Now, why is that significant? Because the law, because of the law, reveals what? That we are what? What does black represent? Sin. And so underneath is this angelic thing, the law being held together by the deity of Christ. But over the top of it, they put this black goat's hair. Again, they have no idea what they're doing when they're doing this, but it's so clear to us today. And it's a picture of sin. And they use bronze clasps. Why is that significant? Because bronze in the Bible is not a picture of deity, but judgment. When Samson was taken into captivity, he was, they used bronze fetters. When they went into the altar to make sacrifice in the outer court, it was a bronze altar. Why? Because bronze is the picture of judgment or, again, or sin. And so we see here that the black is over the top, and only those who were underneath would see the beauty that was beneath it. So this black hair, this goat's hair, was covering it up. Verse 19. Then he made a covering for the tent of ram skins dyed red. So on top of this beautiful tapestry that would have been one of some of those beautiful curtains in the world was this black goat's hair, but then on top of that was ram skins dyed red. Now, we talked about this last time. What is significant? Where do we see the ram in the Bible? Remember when on Mount Moriah, Abraham took his son, Isaac, to sacrifice him to the Lord. And when he went up Mount Moriah... His son said to him, well, Father, we have the wood and we have the fire, but where's the sacrifice? And he told his son, the Lord will provide himself a sacrifice. And we know that he took his son and he tied him down to the altar and he was about to sacrifice him to the Lord. And the Lord stopped him and said, Abraham, now I know that you will not hold anything back from me. And he turned and looked in the thicket and what was caught in the thicket? A ram. And they took the ram and they shed its blood the ram in that, in that scene is a picture or a type of who? Jesus Christ. And so here we see these ram skins being taken. And what do they do with the ram? And by the way, Mount Moriah, at the foot of Mount Moriah is where Golgotha is, and that's where Jesus would later be crucified. So Abraham and Isaac, where the sacrifice was made, where this ram's blood was shed, is the very spot where Jesus would later be crucified. Nothing happens by chance in the Bible. Amen? And so this ram, again, a picture of our Savior. And so they put on top of it this, this red, and again, you've got this beautiful fine linen, a picture, a type of Christ, but on top of it is sin, this black goat's hair. But then on top of that are these dyed red um, ram skins. And then look what it says next. And a covering of badger skins above that. Badger skins were common and ugly. They're still being used today by Bedouins over in Israel. They're extremely ugly. And you know what's amazing to me? When people walk by, when their enemies walk by, the only part of the tabernacle they would see is the badger skins. And they would walk by and go, oh man, that's nasty looking. Look at that. And you know what's interesting to me is the Bible says of our Savior in Isaiah 53, 4, that he has no form or comeliness that we should desire him. Jesus was a very common or even less than common looking man. People were not attracted to our Savior because of his stature. They were not attracted to our Savior because of his, his good looks or even because he was charismatic. They were attracted to him because he's our Savior. 
Amen? And because he spoke the word with authority and because he's the son of the living God. But it's a clear picture of Jesus here because you've got the perfection on the inside, the beauty of the tapestry on the inside, the picture of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords covered because of sin. But then sin being taken care of through the, the shed blood, right? The ram skins dyed red. But then on top of it, the badger skins, a picture of our Savior that he's very common in his appearance. Verse 20. For the tabernacle he made boards of acacia wood. We're going to go to the structure itself. I want to say one last thing about that. You know what? From the world's perspective, they can look at Jesus Christ and see, see something that's not so special. They can look at our Savior, and from the outside, they see badger skins. All right, yeah, what? A man who lived a long time ago. But those of us who know him, we see from the inside out. Amen? And what do we see? We see the beauty of who our Savior is. And we see that fine and beautiful tapestry of how it's all woven together and it's all wrapped up in Him. And apart from Him, our lives would be a disaster. But the world looks and they see common badger skins. Let's move on. For the tabernacle, He made boards of acacia wood standing upright. The length of each board was 10 cubits, or about 15 feet. And the width of each board was a cubit and a half. Each board had two tenons for binding one to another. Thus He made for all the boards of the tabernacle. Acacia wood grows out in the desert. It's covered in thorns. What's thorns a picture of in the Bible? Sin. When did thorns come into existence? Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve fell. What did he say? Thorns and thistles. There were no thorns and no thistles until there was sin. So they bring these boards and ten, tenons were projections to fit into sockets. These were these little things that stuck on the bottom of the board. And they would take the board and they would stick it into these silver sockets that were on the ground. Look at verse 23. And he made boards for the tabernacle, 20 boards for the south side, 40 sockets of silver he made to go under the 20 boards, two sockets under each of the boards for the two tenants. As for the other side of the tabernacle, the north side, he made 20 boards and 40 sockets of silver, two sockets under each of the boards. For the west side of the tabernacle, he made six boards. He also made two boards for the two back corners of the tabernacle. And they were coupled at the bottom and coupled together at the top by one ring. Thus he made both of them on the two corners." So there were eight boards in their sockets, 16 sockets of silver, two sockets under each of the boards. So these boards went all the way around, and these boards were held in place by sockets of silver. And the boards, I believe, and this is just Pastor Dave's opinion, I believe the boards are a picture or a type of us. That each one of these boards was just needed to be drawn or held together by something. One board in and of itself would do it no good. It's even an odd number, one and a half cubits. But put together, it's three cubits, a picture of the Trinity, right? And so these things were put together, and then they were held in place through these silver these protrusions that came out that were stuck into silver sockets. Now, it's interesting to me that what holds us together as a church? We're held together by the, common, the commonality that we have in Christ. We have Jesus Christ in common. They say, they say that blood is thicker than water. Well, the Holy Spirit's thicker than blood. Amen? When you got Jesus in common, you got everything in common. And it's interesting to me that these sockets were made of silver. Now, silver in the Bible often speaks of something. It speaks of redemption. When Jesus was betrayed, what was he sold for? 30 pieces of what? Silver. What is a slave? That was the price of a slave. Slaves were traded for 30 pieces of silver. And here these silver sockets are, the picture of the redemptive work of Christ that holds these boards together and, and makes them from being individual boards covered in thorns, a picture of sin, to now something being used to be a part of the tabernacle, the place where God's glory would dwell. Well, where's the tabernacle today, you guys? Where is it? You're it. Amen? You are the tabernacle. And you once were a board covered with thorns, but you've been set free from your sin because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And now He lives within you, and you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. No longer touching the earth, in the world but not of the world. They would take these boards out of the ground, and they were held above the ground because of these silver sockets in the ground. Verse 30. Verse 31, and he made bars of acacia wood, five for the boards on one side of the tabernacle, five bars for the boards on the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the boards in the tabernacle on the far side westward. If you see a picture of what this looks like, these boards were all next to each other like this. They're very tall and thin boards, 15 feet tall and you know, about this wide, and they're all next to each other going all the way around the tabernacle. And in the middle of them were these five boards that ran across that were covered in gold that held the boards in place. Now, it's interesting, again, 
Pastor Dave's supposition on my part. But I looked and I thought, why five boards? What might these five boards be that God would use to hold the body together? To hold the church together? Overlaid with gold. Gold being a picture of what? Deity. So being held together by God, by His glory. What is He using to hold the church together? What's well, interesting, if you look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, just one possible application. It says, And He Himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and some teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. How many different gifts are listed there that hold the body of Christ together? Five. Pastor Dave's supposition, okay? I'm not saying that's the fact. But you know what? You look at it, you think these five things are holding the body together. You go to Ephesians 4, verse 11, and here are these five gifts used by God to hold the body of Christ together, obviously along with the person of the Holy Spirit. Almost done here for a few more minutes. As believers, we're to be joined together as one through fellowship. 48 linking together, becoming one. 48 boards linked together, becoming one. Supported by those anointed by God to strengthen, exhort, evangelize, and equip. Let me encourage you with something. Christianity is not for the Lone Ranger. Amen? Forsake not the gathering of yourselves together and all the more as the day approaches. As Christians, we should be gathering together more and more, not less and less. I've had people say, you know, you know going to church two or three times a week, that's just getting a little radical. Well, how many days a week do you watch TV? Seven? That's not, you know, you, what, you watch TV again? Didn't you watch it last week? No, we don't do that, right? But when it comes to the Lord and it comes to spiritual things, sometimes we, we say, oh man, where else would I rather be than hanging out with you guys? Where else would I rather be than to come into a place where someone who's gifted to lead worship leads me into the presence of Almighty God? Where else would I rather be than somebody who's got the gift to minister to my kids, to bring my children, that they might teach them the Word of God and encourage them with the very same things they're taught at home? Where else would I rather be than to come to a place where some of you are Barnabases? God's given you the gift to encourage people who can come alongside and encourage and strengthen me in my walk. Where else would I rather be than around people who are so in love with Jesus that they're contagious? You know what? Forsake not the gathering yourselves together. Christianity isn't something we do on our own. And here's the other thing, you guys. If we don't gather together, then you and I cannot use the gifts God's given us to minister to others, along with them being able to minister to us. Amen? If you're not here, we miss you because you have a gift that God wants to use. And if you're not here to use it, it's going to be missing at Calvary Chapel Santa Cruz. Lastly, verse 35, the veil. And he made a veil of blue, purple, scarlet thread and fine woven linen. It was worked in an artistic design of cherubim. Now, where do we see those colors before? Where do we see them? In the linen. What is this a picture of? The veil. Who's the veil? Jesus Christ. Let me read to you. Hebrews 10, 19 and 20 says this. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it. You can look there later. Hebrews 10, 19 and 20 says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He consecrated for us through the veil that is His flesh. The veil is the flesh of Christ. And so they're making this veil. And where did this veil, where did the veil go? It went between the, holy, the most holy place and the holy of holies. They come into the most holy place, and you had the, the lampstand on this side, the table of showbread on this side, the altar of incense right here, and right behind it was the veil. And this veil was extremely thick, and they only were able to go through that veil on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, right? That Day of Atonement, once a year, they would go in, and they would take the firstborn, uh, the lamb of firstborn spotless lamb, and they would sprinkle it on the mercy seat with angels on both sides, right? Cherubim. And it was a picture, again, of Jesus' death on the cross. Now, this veil, what did they do to the veil to put it between the two places? Look what it says. Verse 36. He made for it four pillars of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold, with their hooks of gold, and he cast four sockets of silver for them. He also made a screen. Now, what did he do with these four pillars? The four pillars were between the Holy of Holies and the Most Holy Place. So what did they do to the veil to put it there? They hung it on these four pillars. The veil, the picture of Christ's flesh. And what did they do to our Savior? They hung Him on a cross. How many points on a cross? Four. And we see these four pillars, and the veil is hanging on the four pillars, a very clear picture of the cross. What happened when Jesus died on the cross to the veil? Who remembers? Torn in two. As His flesh was torn, so the veil was torn. 
And when that veil was torn, we could now enter into that most holy place, not on Yom Kippur, not on the Day of Atonement, not with the blood of a lamb in our hands anymore because the Lamb of God had paid the price. He said, to tell us die, it is finished. And now the veil has been torn and we can enter into that most holy place anywhere and anytime. And isn't that awesome? Amen? And that's a picture of Jesus. How can you look at this tabernacle? We haven't even got to the furniture yet. Such a clear picture of our Savior. I, man, I love the Bible. It's such an awesome book. Verse 37, He also made a screen for the tabernacle, tabernacle door of blue, purple, and scarlet thread of fine woven linen made by a weaver. And its five pillars with their hooks and overlaid their capitals of their rings with gold, but their five sockets were bronze. In closing, when they came to the outer court, if you go back and look at that, the very outer court itself there was a, a screen or a door that people had to enter in. And how many doors were in the tabernacle? Who remembers? How many doors in the tabernacle? Anybody know? One. And that door was made up of the very same material that's a typology or a picture of Jesus Christ. The same material is in the veil. The Bible says the veil is His flesh. So there's no question that the veil is a picture of Christ. That very same material was what people had to go through to get into the tabernacle to make sacrifice that their sins would be forgiven. What is this a picture of? John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. The only way you could get into that place to make the sacrifice was to go through Jesus Christ. Amen? The only way, the only door that the world says, oh, there's many paths. No, there's not. There's many ways. No, there's not. There's one way, there's one truth, there's one life, and it's Jesus Christ. Amen? And only through Him can we enter in. The worship team will come on up. So in review, the tabernacle is a picture of Jesus Christ. That first layer, a perfect picture of His, of his uh, righteousness, of the fact that He's deity, His royalty, the fact that He would be sacrificed on the cross for us. That second layer, the, that black goat's hair, a picture of our sin that separates us from God. That third layer, the ram skin dyed red, a picture of His shed blood on the cross. The fourth layer on top, the badger skins, a picture of the fact that it's common and ugly, the part only seen by the outside. The veil itself is a picture of Christ who bridges the gap between sinful man and holy God. That it was hung on pillars, a picture of cross of the cross. And then in the very first part, remember that God loves a cheerful giver. God's called you guys. If you're a Christian, He's called you. He's got He wants to use you for His glory. He's not looking for ability, but availability. You be available, He'll make you able. Amen? You be available and say, Lord, use me. He'll give you the gifting. He'll provide and give you the opportunity to be used for His glory. Just say, Lord, use me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You again of the clear picture of Your perfect Son that was sent to suffer and die that we might have eternal life. May we never take it for granted. And Lord, we just thank You for Your love and Your grace. And Lord, I pray that we would be like that woman who broke the, the alabaster flask and just poured it out all over your feet. Lord, just to worship you and to praise you. You're so worthy to be worshipped and to be praised. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, stand up and close the worship song. <laughs>